0: Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Actually, when we start to see that there's all of these body systems we haven't investigated yet, isn't that a message of hope? Like, no, you're not just unlucky and can't get pregnant. There's actually this multi-system dysfunction going on, but we've identified that. We've used a really thorough intake and physical exam and lab work, and we understand which of your body systems are most impacted. And we have the tools to make that improved. So how empowering. Knowledge is everything, and that's what I really appreciate about the functional medicine approach.
1: Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones, and today I'm talking with fertility expert and IFM educator, Dr. Kalia Waddles, all about reproductive longevity. Now you've heard about your overall health span and the longevity of your life, but what about the health span and longevity of your ovaries? It's a fascinating conversation, especially if you're looking to become pregnant or concerned about the health of your ovaries. Before we get started, though, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast, and that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine Podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Kalia, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. I am so excited to be here. I've really been looking forward to this. I know we're gonna have a great conversation. Well, when you and I were talking about reproductive longevity at first, I didn't quite understand what that meant. And once you explained it as it relates to fertility and our like reproductive age span, and that has become, you and I were just talking off camera, that has become really, really popular in the media, in famous folks, and in our friends, our friends and family who are starting to question at what age do I need to worry about my reproductive longevity? Should I be thinking about freezing eggs? What can I do to support this? So when I'm ready to have a baby, everything is good and healthy and ready to go, no matter the age. And so I'm just really psyched to talk about this because I know it freaks a lot of women out to hear, oh, you're too old. Oh, you're over 35. Oh, XYZ. And so to have you in as the expert, I love it.
0: Well, we live in this culture where we always are aware that the clock is ticking, right? There's this added pressure and reproductive longevity and reproductive resiliency. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I invented those terms. I should search it and just see if anyone else is (laughs) using it. But there's all kinds of things we're thinking about. We talk about lifespan and health span. And now I'm proposing that we also talk about fertile span. This is another term that I'm trying, like maybe it'll catch mainstream because there's so much to chew on here. And just as you're saying, we hear it from friends, family, patients. That's the whole reason I even became interested in this topic is, you know, I see in my fertility practice, women who are in their twenties and their thirties and They're coming in because they've been trying for a year to get pregnant. It's not happening. And when we actually start to do a little investigation, we see that they have diminished ovarian reserve, and we'll talk about all of that, but their hormones actually look like they're menopausal. And I had to pause here and say, what is going on? These are patients who are supposed to be in the prime of their reproductive function. And as a primary care doc, I have a real obligation to figure out how can I get ahead of this and be proactive? And what is driving this accelerated aging process in the reproductive system?
1: Yeah. And while we're going to focus predominantly, of course, on reproduction, across the entire health lifespan, women are saying, I feel like I'm hitting perimenopause too early. I feel like I've hit menopause too early I feel like I've crashed into menopause. And it all ties in to that, again, that reproductive longevity lifespan. If you're already feeling hormonal and crappy in your twenties and thirties, I guarantee you your forties and fifties aren't going to get much better. And so I love that we're one, that you're such a champion for this and two, that we're going to talk about it.
0: And isn't it interesting, I have to insert this fun piece of trivia, because when I started doing my investigation, I found that losing your fertility potential in roughly midlife is almost uniquely a human issue, because even other mammals, like the chimpanzee, who we're genetically closely related to, reproduces for most of their lifespan. Really, the only animals that lose their fertility potential in midlife are humans, and then some species of whales, belugas, narwhal. So, what that's so interesting to think about, isn't it? I really have have thought about that often since I read that. And there's all of these different hypotheses about it. One being this, and they call it the grandmother hypothesis, essentially means we lose our fertility when we're relatively young. So then we can invest our time and energy into caring for our descendants. So I interpreted that as we're all thriving because the grandmas of the world are taking care of us, which is probably true. (laughs) But more than just, the fertility component, we know that when we lose our reproductive potential, there's all of these implications in other body systems, right? We lose our bone, mineral density, cardiovascular disease, cognitive function. So really my whole point of focusing on reproductive longevity is to say, yes, we want you to have this happy, healthy, amazing pregnancy now, but looking beyond the reproductive system and how can we cultivate longevity and abundant health into the future?
1: Absolutely. Here, here, cheers to that. How did you, before we like really get into this, how did you get into this? Like for people who don't know who you are, give them a little snapshot into your background, your history, how you did this and what you stand for.
0: Yeah, love it. So I'm a naturopathic physician. As I was in my naturopathic medical program, I started interning at the Institute for Functional Medicine, which was such an amazing opportunity for me to blend the naturopathic and functional medicine philosophies, which are actually so well aligned. So I always tell anyone who asks, like, what's the difference between naturopathic and functional medicine? Functional medicine is essentially an operating system. So I describe it as a conceptual framework on which I hang my naturopathic therapeutics. So it kind of gives me a roadmap to help me understand how I can solve complex chronic disease cases, but then I use all my naturopathic treatments to get the patient feeling better. So I started doing that internship and then during, this is going to sound like a wild adventure, but while I was doing all that, I had two children during my medical program. And so becoming a parent, that was just so transformational for me. And I really realized how much I want that for anybody who desires to be a parent. So the last two years of my naturopathic program, I spent... I begged the reproductive endocrinologist in my area, please take me in. I know I'm a naturopathic student and not a traditional gynecology in a gynecology program, but please take me in. And they did. So I rotated through three of the most popular fertility clinics in my area. And what I found was there were so many what we might consider lifestyle diseases in patients who were going through the IVF cycle, right? They had low vitamin D and insulin resistance and chronic inflammation and all of these things that I thought, wow, I could use my tools and maybe I can't prevent them from needing IVF, but I feel really confident that I could improve outcomes. So I started to really take this deep dive into how functional naturopathic medicine could support
1: fertility patients and here we are. <laughs> I love that. And it's so true too. When I was in practice, fertility was not my specialty, but just hormones in general. So I ended up having a number of fertility patients. And I was just shocked at the number of people who would say, oh, I never got like, no, I didn't get any blood work. I will say, did you get, have you had your vitamin D check? Did they look at your thyroid? Have you, they're like, no, I'm going through IVF and I'm doing these, following this very strict protocol and on what I take and the injections and the medications and egg retrieval, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, Nothing. They didn't do anything. And obviously now uh, they may have improved quite a bit, but even back then I thought there's so much we can do from a lifestyle, maybe basics point of view, basics to us. And so I don't think people realize that. If they don't realize that this extra testing and lifestyle and as you said, like glucose and insulin, et cetera, et cetera, plays in a fertility, which we'll talk about all of this. And what's even better is you and I were again, you and I were talking before, like it's you can do something about it, right? And that's what's really exciting for those who are struggling with fertility.
0: How empowering. Like you said, you can do something about it. And that's kind of just another added layer to why I so appreciate doing a comprehensive preconception workup because especially for people who have been diagnosed with unexplained infertility, which is one of the most frustrating diagnoses, it kind of gives this hope of unexplained meaning We haven't turned over every stone. And actually, when we start to see that there's all of these body systems we haven't investigated yet, isn't that a message of hope? Like, no, you're not just unlucky and can't get pregnant. There's actually this multi-system dysfunction going on, but we've identified that. We've used a really thorough intake and physical exam and lab work, and we understand which of your body systems are most impacted, and we have the tools to make that improved. So how empowering Knowledge is everything. And that's what I really appreciate about the functional medicine approach.
1: Absolutely. And so, taking that a step farther, can you define for everyone, like, what is the difference or how do you view, again, that lifespan, health span, but then fertility span so people know the difference? Yeah. So, maybe we'll take
0: this in chunks. So, lifespan, right, is essentially the time you have existed on this earthly planet from the time you were born to the time you depart. It's really a measure of time where health span is how old your cells and tissues seem based on things like DNA methylation and epigenetics. It's kind of, it's more a measure of function than a measure of time. So I always kind of a key takeaway as I'm learning about longevity in all of our body systems is that aging is really a measure of biology, not so much a measure of time. And then we start to layer on the reproductive function. And what we see clearly is there seems to be a real spectrum. I mean, we see these patients who lose their ovarian resiliency or their reproductive potential in their late 20s, early 30s. But then we all know that person who had a baby when they were 45, right? And so there seems to be also a fertile span. And just like our health span, there's so many modifiable factors that play into that our fertility spectrum and so that's really what i'm invested in is figuring out what are those drivers what are those influences so that we can protect your fertile span
1: and when you talk about fertile span for everyone who's listening are you predominantly talking about like the health of the ovaries and the follicles of the ovaries
0: yeah the health of the ovaries regular ovulation hormone production that protects your bones and your brain and your nervous system.
1: Okay. All right. So for those who are listening, let's talk about like what can go wrong. What are things you think about? You'd mentioned earlier, like pathological, physiological, when it comes to these systems. So for those maybe with no medical training, they could wrap their brain around this, especially if they're struggling with fertility. Totally. Okay. So I
0: think that there's maybe a couple parts to this question. So I'll start I think that's really smart to talk about what's normal yeah, ovarian aging and then what we might consider pathological or abnormal ovarian aging. So whenever I talk about this, I want to be really clear. The fact of the matter is our ovaries are going to age. There's no way around it. Seems a little unjust to me, but I don't make the rules. So our ovaries have a decline in function that ultimately results in the menopausal transition that likely happens in the early 50s for most of us. That is normal. What is not normal is when we see this acceleration in ovarian aging and the loss of ovarian reserve. So that can look like diminished ovarian reserve, or you'll see it as DOR. So diminished ovarian reserve is really interesting, and we can talk more about this. But it's when we do traditional markers of ovarian reserve, like anti-malarian hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone and estradiol, And we see that there is, there appears to be a decrease in how many eggs remain in the ovary, but the person may still have normal menstrual cycles. They're still ovulating. Their hormones look pretty normal. And then we have what's called premature ovarian insufficiency. And this is when the ovaries, even in someone who's young, they look perimenopausal or even menopausal, and the patient is starting to have irregular periods. They're not ovulating regularly. So it appears that their ovaries are more advanced age than they really are. And then the other layer to this is there's another diagnosis that's poor ovarian response. So that means someone is already in IVF and we're trying to kind of push on their ovaries with hormones to get them to develop some eggs and they're just not responding. So all of those categories are what I would call abnormal or accelerated ovarian aging. And when we look in the research, there's kind of two categories that I have identified as being the biggest contributors to ovarian aging, and it's oxidative stress and inflammation.
1: Those are my big two, and we can definitely dive in there. Oh yeah, because you know people are going to go, what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What in the heck is that, and how do I avoid it? Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll start with oxidative stress, because I feel like that's a big
0: kind of umbrella it can encapsulate some other categories. So oxidative stress is essentially when we have a buildup of compounds that can damage DNA. And we know that our ovaries are really susceptible to the effects of oxidative stress. And people are always like, well, where does this come from? Where am I getting exposed to this? And it can be lots of different things. It can be having a high sugar diet, having environmental toxin exposures. It can be from chronic inflammation. They're very much tied together. It can be from having a low intake of dietary antioxidants. So there's so many lifestyle factors that can increase oxidative stress. And when I'm working with patients, we go digging and we kind of look for some sources of oxidative stress to see how we can avoid. But what happens is we get an accumulation of oxidative stress within the ovary, and it essentially causes the ovarian tissue to waste away more rapidly. It's called atrophy. We see this loss of the ovarian tissue. So oxidative stress is, I think, probably one of the most important things that we're thinking about in terms of ovarian aging. Inflammation is another one. And there's all these connections to other body systems that maybe we can go down a little tour of some other body systems. But inflammation can come from lots of different sources. Again, I think about some of these people are like, what? I've never really realized that there was a connection here. But periodontal disease? Periodontal disease is a significant contributor to inflammation in the reproductive system. Our body is all connected. (laughs) Yeah, It could be food sensitivities. It could be intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut. It could again be toxin exposures. It could be high sugar diet again. So we can definitely go inflammation hunting if we need to. But what happens is maybe I'll take periodontal disease as an example, because that's a good one. We get inflammation in the gums that those inflammatory chemicals enter our systemic circulation where they can actually travel to the ovary, infiltrate the ovarian tissue. And number one, they can affect progesterone production. So now we see lower progesterone, which causes a whole slew of issues with fertility but it can also cause a lot of inflammation within that ovarian tissue. And again, we see a wasting of that tissue. So now our periodontal disease has influenced our fertility in the ovary and in the endometrium, which is that inner lining of the uterus, we see that that inflammation can really affect our endometrial receptivity. So maybe someone is ovulating, And they are fertilizing the egg. But then the egg travels to this endometrium that's very inflamed and it won't implant. So I'm thinking about this in my patients who say, I'm ovulating every month. I know I'm timing intercourse appropriately. What is going on here? And then I'll take it a step further because that same periodontal disease and the associated inflammation can cause all of these issues in our vasculature, including our heart valves. So now we're at higher risk for heart disease and we see an association of gum disease and Alzheimer's. So clearly, I'm just building a case here to say a really thorough preconception workup where I'm looking at, I'm measuring some markers of inflammation and then um, working with my patient to identify sources of oxidative stress, sources of inflammation. Not only are we setting up for success in the fertility realm, but look at how we're also kind of reducing these risk enhancing factors for
1: chronic disease that might happen 20, 30 years later. Absolutely. And I love that you've connected it all to the greater system because. In medicine now, as we know it, conventional medicine, it's, it is that is very systemized. If you are looking to get pregnant, you generally start with your OBGYN. And if in the topic of conversation, you say, yes, when I brush my teeth or floss, my gums bleed. And they're like, well, that's not me. That's a dentist. Or you say, I'm also having a lot of gas and bloating, or I just got back from vacation in a foreign country and I had diarrhea and I think I might've picked something up and it's really not good down there. Like, Well, that's not me. That's gastroenterology. However, your case is, it's all overlaid and it's all connected, right? And so if you are that person who's listening to this and you talking about gum disease or you have a parasite in the gut, or I actually just was consulting with somebody the other day who finally figured out they have celiac disease. So they've been eating wheat gluten for years and figured out they have celiac disease and it has made a massive improvement in just two months of being gluten-free because they've cut their inflammation, their body. Every day they're eating gluten and wheat, not realizing their body was super pissed off, super inflamed. And because your intestines are right on top of your ovaries, they're all there, it was really affecting her hormones. And so she didn't really have a hormone problem. She had a gut problem and it was due to the food she was eating. In her case, it happened to be celiac. But as you said, it could be, of course, other foods that are big triggers for inflammation. And I don't think This gets talked about enough in conventional medicine. It's like, I need to get pregnant. I'm seeing my OB or I'm going to a fertility center, a reproductive endocrinologist, and everybody else is like, oh, well, I'll refer. Oh God, that's GI. Oh, that's dentist. Oh, that's cardio. That's not me. But it's so related, isn't it?
0: It's so related. And if we think about what a service it is to get these body systems in order before pregnancy, because it's a hormonal roller coaster and then the (laughs) postpartum, time frame as well. I think about when we're not screening for things like inflammation and anemia and nutrient status before pregnancy, we're kind of setting ourselves up to deal with things like gestational hypertension or preeclampsia or anemia or gestational diabetes. And then that really can translate into increased risk again for chronic disease later. So I think I do this like goal preconception panel, and I used to feel defensive about it because people were like, oh, is that really all necessary? But now I feel very confident I can make a case for how all of these things are going to impact fertility outcomes and help support the postpartum phase and do some risk reduction in terms of chronic disease. So I'm a big believer in that comprehensive workup and also assessing some of the things that are a little bit more tricky to measure Things like mitochondrial function, which we can definitely talk about in terms of ovarian aging, but there are so many body systems
1: that it feels really relevant for pregnancy and beyond. It's no joke. Absolutely. And I do, before we get into the lab portion, because I you know everyone's got their pen and paper ready to write that down, start with the mitochondrial piece and explain the mitochondrial piece What are the mitochondria for those who forgot? And then how does that relate to ovarian reserve, ovarian aging? And then we'll push into the labs.
0: I love mitochondria. So this is (laughs) fun to talk about. I want everyone to like channel back to your 10th grade biology teacher who said mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. So mitochondria generate cellular energy. And I describe it to patients as ovulation, fertilization, implantation, these are energetically expensive processes. So we really need cellular energy to kind of pay for those processes. That's our currency. So mitochondrial health is so vital to all of those reproductive pathways. And I'm going to get a little bit in the weeds right now, but I think it's important. So I've heard you talk so much about granulosa cells and lecture about granulosa cells before, and I granulosa cells are beloved to me. So inside our ovary, we have these little structures called follicles. They're essentially the egg sac. And the egg sac contains our oocyte or egg cell. It's swimming around in there. And our follicle is predominantly made of granulosa cells. And granulosa cells, I call them the helper cells. They receive hormonal signals from the brain. They help to nourish our growing egg cell, help it thrive. And we know that the proliferation and differentiation of granulosa cells really relies on mitochondrial energy production. So sometimes when I see that someone, I'm going to give an example of someone who has low progesterone. So we know that we have our little follicle, the egg, Burst from the follicle, that's ovulation. And then that structure that was the egg sac becomes a new structure called the corpus luteum that pumps out progesterone. It maintains our endometrium for about two weeks until we're either pregnant and then it continues or we get our period. So the health and the vitality of that corpus luteum really plays a role in how robust of a progesterone response we get in our luteal phase. So if I'm seeing really low progesterone, progesterone maybe that rises and then falls off really quick, I'm wondering what's going on with the health of that follicle. And so mitochondrial health, among other things that I'll try to remember to revisit, but mitochondrial health is one of those very vital aspects that I'm thinking about. And to kind of link this back to aging, we know that just as we age, our egg cells have less mitochondrial energy production, less mitochondrial DNA copy numbers, more mitochondrial DNA mutations. And then we combine that with this inflammation overload that we're exposed to in this world with all of our environmental exposures and we're super stressed out and we're, it's like hustle culture and our gut is leaky because we're eating with the TV on and all of these things. Now we have this, again, this rapid acceleration of inflammation within the ovary and oxidative stress. Generation, which can damage our mitochondria, which I just said is so important for all of these processes that lead to conception. So mitochondrial health is one of the pillars of what I focus on with my preconception patients, both male and female. Mitochondria is very important for sperm health as well. So that's the
1: primer on mitochondria for fertility. Which and I love that because it's so funny. A lot of people will go, "Well, what's the one herb that will raise my progesterone? What's the one nutrient, you know, that will raise my progesterone?" I was like, "Oh gosh, it's a whole cascade." And I just like you, I'm always like that. Mitochondria play a big role, and if they are not healthy, and you can't power the car, that's going to push out progesterone in a good manner. So when it comes to testing give us an example of the things that you one that are common that you like to run and then maybe some things that you used to defend and now you don't defend anymore because you just know it's really important but it's not commonly run yeah so i know when i say
0: the things that i typically order it seems like a lot but to in all fairness many of these things are labs that would be covered at your annual wellness exam but what i find this is not true for everyone but oftentimes when i have patients that come in for fertility this is the First time they have accessed medical care in like 10 years. They felt healthy. They had no complaints otherwise. And so they just haven't seen the doctor. And now they try to get pregnant. It's not working. They're shocked because they've always felt good. But I try to reframe it like, okay, well, how great that now you're accessing care and that brought you into my office and now we can be proactive and we have this opportunity to explore. So a lot of these things someone may have already had if they're getting their annual wellness exam but I'll kind of break it down. I have five categories of labs that I tend to order in my preconception screening. So hormones, I'm looking at how the brain and the ovary are talking to each other with luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, estradiol. I do on occasion run anti-malarian hormone, which has some controversy surrounding it that we should talk about. I do a testosterone panel. I do uh, DHEA sulfate, prolactin. I'll do progesterone one week after ovulation. So I should pause here and do some clarification. I do follicle-stimulating hormone, estradiol, and anti-malarian hormone on cycle day three. And because the patient is at the lab, I will like do all the other things at that point too. And then a week after ovulation, I will measure their progesterone. I want to see that nice, robust response from their corpus luteum. I do a bunch of thyroid studies. So a TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3 sometimes. Thyroid antibodies, which are, I think data is really emerging that thyroid antibodies, even in someone who has normal thyroid function, is so important for fertility. I do some metabolic markers. So this is the complete blood count, the comprehensive metabolic panel. I do a blood glucose, which is usually included in my metabolic panel. I do a hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin, a lipid panel, and then a high sensitivity C reactive protein. If that's new to anyone, it's an inflammatory marker. I see this elevated all the time in periodontal disease, endometriosis, gut infections. It's not specific. It doesn't tell us where the inflammation is coming from, but that's my cue to say, wow, there is an inflammatory burden going on here. Let's try to figure out the source and then use all of our inflammation modulators. I do some nutritional testing. So vitamin D, ferritin, iron. Don't let me forget to come back to iron in a minute. Talk about the health of the follicle. I do some B vitamins for some people. Homocysteine, I love to do. Going back to your point, I do a celiac panel on if it seems right. And someone asked me, oh, is that really necessary? And I said, especially for someone who has unexplained infertility, 100%. Let's just rule that out as a source of inflammation. And then we can do some infectious screening as needed. So it's pretty routine that we'll test for things, especially if someone's progressing on to the fertility clinic that will look at HIV, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, hepatitis, cytomegalovirus, EBV, some people might need to see if they're if they have had their varicella vaccine in the past and they can't remember so we might look at that there's definitely a place i'm not typically one to go infection searching but in the right patient i think that's appropriate so It's a big old preconception panel, and that's kind of just the standard stuff. Then we can also talk about salivary cortisol and comprehensive stool analysis and micronutrient testing. So the list is large, but I think it really highlights we have so many tools at our disposal, and it's information that your body is giving us. So it just makes sense to me that we would capture that.
1: And what's great is that I understand some people might think, like, be listening to this going, oh my gosh, that... Seems really overwhelming, but because nobody comes with a manual, we don't know that one person's fertility struggle, just thinking of past patients, could be completely thyroid-related, undiagnosed Hashimoto's. Nobody bothered to look them up. Once that got addressed, they got pregnant right away. The patient I talked about the other day, just that I consulted with the other day, celiac, had been celiac, now two months later, doing great, feeling so much better. There's like such a variability That it's definitely hard for us to go, well, we're just gonna start with one test, or there's a one herb that treats all, or a one prenatal that treats all, because unfortunately, there just isn't. And as I said, we don't come with a manual. So I can't just like flip to your fertility section and go, oh, okay, here's what you're up against, and here's what we need to do. That'd be nice though. (sighs) Oh my gosh. If we all came (laughs) with our own MARC manuals, like for ourselves. Yes, that That'd would be, be fantastic. Great. <laughs> Can I do a disclaimer
0: about iron really quick before I forget?
1: Please. That was the next thing. Yes.
0: Yes. I just think this is so important. So I screen the iron status of patients who are struggling to get pregnant. And we know that iron is a very important oxygen delivery system, right? It delivers oxygen to all of our tissues, including our brain, including our ovaries, including our uterus. And to kind of link this into the reproductive longevity piece, as we age, we see a decrease in vascularization to the ovaries. So blood flow just decreases. It just does. And then when we have less vascularization, there's less blood flow through the ovary, we get less oxygen delivery. If you then pair that with someone who has low iron, they are going to really struggle with oxygen delivery to the ovary. And we see this autophagy, so essentially our self-eating of our granulosa cells, and then our oocytes, our egg cells, kind of atrophy and dissolve away. If we're trying to get pregnant and protect our reproductive longevity, that is a big deal. So the two pieces I want to highlight here, just check iron status. It's so easy to run the blood work and Then you can figure out, can you do this with a combination? I usually do a combination of food and oral supplementation. At times, people need IV therapy if they're very, very low. And then the other piece to this is supporting blood flow through the ovary. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and there was a reproductive endocrinologist lecturing, and he said the health of the follicle is really just a function of capillary blood flow through the ovary. And I loved it. I've been thinking about that ever since. And so I'm always thinking about how can I support blood flow? And for me, that often looks like acupuncture, which is one of the best ways that I know to support blood flow through the pelvis, but also just gentle movement, exercise, yoga, tai Chi, massage, reflexology, that all gets the blood flowing. I think about maintaining blood viscosity, just staying hydrated, having healthy fatty acids in our diet and all of those things are so vitally important. Oh, the other piece, sorry. Nitric oxide. I know that's so like hot in the news right now, and <laughs> yeah, I've been doing all these like nitric oxide experiments on myself. But just eating foods that support healthy nitric oxide production, which helps your blood vessels dilate, it's beets and pomegranate and leafy greens and nuts and seeds. I always have patients who are in their two week wait, which is the time after they ovulate till their period comes, or they get a positive pregnancy test, or they've just done IUI, or they've just done an embryo transfer. Like, let's eat all these foods that so. Support really great blood flow to your ovaries and endometrium.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to say, even to the brain, with if you don't have proper blood flow, period, in your whole body from the brain down to wherever you need to go, like that's our information superhighway. That's how the hormones get around. So if the brain is trying to tell the ovary, do a thing, make a hormone, make an ovulation, release the egg but it can't get down or your brain itself doesn't have very great blood flow or oxygenation. Let's say you're a mouth breather or sleep apnea, or you constantly have cricks in your neck or tight muscles or whatever it is. You sit with your head forward all day long on the computer. I know we all just sat up, didn't we? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Sat up straight and pulled our chin back. I was like, oh my gosh. So it goes, it's still, the same things apply. It's the movement, it's the stretching, it's the massage, it's the acupuncture, it's the body work, however that looks for you. All the way down. And then the second thing that I had a surgeon tell me eons ago, a gynecologist surgeon, she goes, This is probably decades ago. She said, She goes, Do you think about scars? Do you think about scars in impeding? And again, this was, I was just out in practice. So this is like 2006, 2007 when I was working with her. And she's like, You know, I see like tummy tucks or C sections or whatever abdominal surgeries. And these women have these big scars. And I just wonder if that really, Gets in the way. Fast forward in my career, and I realized, yes, absolutely, it's very true that scar t- scar formation scar formation is not logical, and it doesn't care how it forms. It just forms. It's not, unfortunately, not intelligent. And so, the way that it forms, it will grab onto, or hold onto, or adhere to whatever's around it. And so, that can include fascia, or muscles, or vessels, and and now they're stuck or trapped. And so, now, of course, we see in our medicine scar therapy to help try to release some of those adhesions that happen. And then you add on things like endometriosis. Endometriosis, of course, does not care, unfortunately, where it adheres to or where it forms. And so it can also restrict. And so I love that you brought that up because it's not often talked about, hardly ever. And although some IVF clinics and reproductive endocrinologists do refer for acupuncture, they have in-house acupuncture. So when I would talk to them They're like, I'm not really sure how it works or why it works. I just know it does work. And I'm like, it does work, doesn't it? Yes, for a variety of
0: reasons. (laughs) Physical medicine sure does work. And I have been really encouraged. Sometimes we see patients who their fallopian tube is closed because of adhesions. And I would say maybe over just the last five years, I'm seeing so much more research on manual pelvic therapy for addressing some of those adhesions endometriosis, we could do a whole talk about that. But since we were talking about labs and the link to reproductive aging and fertility, I think it's maybe interesting to mention on the endometriosis front, the insulin resistance piece, right? Can we dive into that a little bit? Because I feel like that's so important that Again, this maybe seems a little defensive. I had ordered a fasting insulin on a patient who had a history of PCOS and endometriosis. I was kind of serving as her specialty care. She had another doc who was her primary care. And her primary care doc said, Dr. Waddles ordered a fasting insulin. She is excessive. And you know what? Now, now I can see, I'm like, it was. I appreciate it because I was really going above and beyond, but it stuck with me for a long time and I felt really defensive about it. But the more and more I understand and learn about metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance and all of the downstream effects, I'm actually really happy that we're looking at that in a variety of different patients who present with kind of cardiometabolic stuff going on. So insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia is... One of the most common sources of oxidative stress, So we see that in patients who have a lot of insulin floating around in their body all the time, that is definitely setting them up for advanced or accelerated ovarian aging. And then in our patients, I think the PCOS connection is more clear with insulin resistance, but sometimes we don't think about it as much for endometriosis. But I always try to remind everyone that insulin can stimulate or increase activity of the enzyme aromatase, right? That irreversibly converts testosterone to estrogen. And estrogen is, endometriosis is an estrogen responsive condition. So if we have more insulin, more estrogen, it's feeding that tissue. It's really important to think about that for patients with endometriosis as well. So this is another example with metabolic dysfunction that we can see It's affecting our reproductive system, it's affecting our ability to ovulate, and it's contributing to all of these chronic conditions.
1: And being on the more functional spectrum, the insulin reference range is so large. I mean, it can be 2 to 20, up to 25. You may be listening to this right now, you have your labs pulled up, and you look at your insulin and you go, well... 25 is the cutoff. I'm at 18. I'm in the range. Good to go, right? Right. And that's how pro- your OBGYN probably told you you were fine. Your endocrinologist probably told you were fine. Primary care, yep, you're in the range. 25 is the cutoff. You're fine at 18. I was reading a study and I quote this study all the time because we, you and I, and our a lot of our colleagues obviously have a much narrower yes. insulin, right? Usually you will hear in our field, like anywhere between two and five is normal, two and seven, but usually it's two and five. So I found this study where they talked about cardiometabolic risk. And they said, if you have high insulin, you have three times the risk of cardiometabolic syndrome. So cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome squished together, not good. And I thought, well, what's high insulin? And high insulin to them was considered like nine, anything over nine. And then they had like medium level insulin, which was like five to 8.9. And I thought, then why is the range up to 25? If this study on humans is showing that you get a three times increased risk for cardiometabolic syndrome over nine or 10, then why is the range up to 25? And so this is why I know it can be frustrating for people who are listening who are like, I've gotten some of these markers checked and I've been told I'm quote normal, I'm in the range. But yeah, even you and I are looking at the literature and going, well, actually the literature is showing that range is not great. Like We need to tighten that way up to reduce risk. Yeah,
0: we need to tighten it up. Especially I sometimes will have patients who have a history of, Gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, and then I am very strict. Like I want to see that thing two or three good <laughs> yeah. zone for me, but I'm not messing around because that's those conditions can escalate quickly, and I want to be really careful and really thoughtful. But I think I'm hopeful that we start to adjust some of these reference ranges as more and more data emerges about the
1: risk with much lower values than we see on a traditional reference range. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. So as we start to wrap this up, you know, the burning question in everybody's mind is, all right, what can I do to slow ovarian aging? Are there foods, nutrients, are there go-tos for you? Obviously, it depends on their blood work, their history, all the things. But as sort of a broad blanket, give everyone an idea so that they know there's a lot of hope out there. Yes, there is absolutely a lot of hope. This is why we call it modifiable lifestyle factors because (laughs) we
0: can do something about it, right? Which is so comforting and reassuring. So I keep joking with my friends and family that I'm gonna write a book that's like the ovary friendly lifestyle or something like that because there's just so many things we can do in our everyday lives. So let's start with nutrition. I'm a food first kind of doc. And so I think it's really important that we start there. So the first thing I'm gonna say is I like to be mindful of advanced glycation end products or ages. And I'll just give a little context around this that ages, they can form in the body, but they're mostly from food. And this is when a sugar reacts with a protein or a fat under high heat, high temp, dry heat conditions. So I'm thinking fried foods, baked goods, that's where we're really set up to have a sugar and a protein or fat reacting under those conditions. And when that happens, we generate these compounds. They're called advanced glycation end products, and they essentially damage DNA. And they do a couple different things in the ovary. So number one, they can concentrate in the follicular fluid, which is that soup that our egg cells are swimming in, excuse me, and they cause all kinds of DNA issues in our egg cell. They also prevent our granulosa cells from receiving those hormonal signals to the brain. And there's actually some data showing that women who have PCOS have higher concentrations of advanced glycation end products in their follicles. So I definitely have my eye on that. So I try to just reduce sources of advanced glycation end products is there an opportunity to remove some fried foods remove some baked goods i don't want to like remove all joy from life but how can we start to really look at these things thoughtfully the other thing is antioxidants we know that antioxidants are one of the major ways that we can combat ovarian aging there's actually some pretty good data on things like vitamin c vitamin e melatonin is a really wonderful antioxidant that can concentrate in the follicular fluid. Things like resveratrol curcumin quercetin what's amazing is that these are also some of the same compounds that can support longevity in our immune and cardiovascular system so we're getting some added benefit here so in my practice i use a food plan that's called the mito food plan it's from the institute for functional medicine it combines mitochondrial support foods antioxidants we're eating the rainbow there's lots of fiber healthy
1: fats so that's where i typically begin I love it. And I think this is really helpful for people who are feeling overwhelmed or they have had no direction or they have been, they have lost all hope, sent off to a reproductive endocrinologist or a full IVF center. And they're thinking, is there not anything I can do? Is there nothing I can do or or add into or remove from my lifestyle plan, diet, what have you? And this is so wonderful for somebody to go, oh, there's like a whole plan. I can do that. I can cut out fried foods. So I can eat the rainbow. I could add in some more fiber. This is totally modifiable without losing joy. I love that you said that. I don't want to give up all joy. I <laughs> to keep the joy. And then in addition to the dietary component, I try
0: to cover all the modifiable lifestyle factors. So sleep is a really important one. We talked about melatonin, and we know that if you're, I tell patients, I want you in bed by 11 p.m., In a room that's so dark that if you hold your hand in front of your face, you can't see it. Like, let's get this room as dark as possible so that we get that natural melatonin increase. And we know how important melatonin is for placenta development, too. So it feels like a win-win. Exercise, we talked about the benefit of the blood flow with exercise. And then stress management or stress transformation strategies. I know people are like, okay, I know I should not be stressed. Everybody knows that. But there's actually a really interesting paper I was reading about oxidative stress as a cause of ovarian aging. And they called out pressure. And I was like, what does that mean? And they said, contemporary, the contemporary woman is under so much pressure to work and family and friends and to do it all. And the cortisol response that that generates and the oxidative stress that that generates is probably one contributor to why we're seeing more women in their 20s and 30s who are struggling with their ovarian reserve. And I thought that was such an amazing call out because It's so true. It's kind of what we talked about at the beginning of this episode. The clock is ticking, do it all, hustle culture. So I actually think that that is a really important piece to look at as well.
1: I love that. I think like 10 or 15 years ago, no, maybe 10 years ago when hustle culture became hashtag hustle, everyone had the cute little signs on their desk that said hustle babe or hustle culture or boss babe, hustle harder. And I was like, stop doing that. I was like, no, no hustle. Hashtag don't hustle because I was seeing it in cortisol, you know, working in the realm of hormones. And I was like, no, don't do that. Oh, my gosh. And now it's made its way into the literature. And you're talking about it here and potentially affecting fertility and so many other things. Absolutely.
0: The last layer I'll put on here. There's like so much more we could talk about. I know. (laughs) uh, Just for the sake of time, uh, with some testing, I know we talked about testing, but there's some therapeutics that might be helpful if we really need to support the health of that follicle. We talked about antioxidants. Vitamin D is so important for the health of our follicle. And then also DHEA to kind of link this back to the aging piece. We see a natural decline in DHEA as we age. Once we're hit 25, it starts to decline again. Seems a little unfair to me. Right. And it's so important for maintaining our body composition and cognitive function. But it's also really important to support energy production within the follicles. So I test DHEA and not people always ask me, like my friend took DHEA and never had any testing. And I know that happens a lot. I like to test and then supplement as needed. It kind of helps me pick a dose and monitor the patient's response to treatment. But if someone needs DHEA, I think that can be really, really helpful to support their follicle So there are so many ways we can use precision, personalized medicine to really support the
1: reproductive, the fertile span. I love this. Ah, Kalia, I'm so glad that you came on to the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. You've just been dropping clinical pearls, actionable items left and right. And that's what I love. And I just so appreciate your knowledge and the way that you present it. So where can people find you? If if somebody's like this first of all, you need to write a book. But second of all, where do people just learn more from you or if they want to see you as a patient or maybe they're in an area that they are struggling to find a practitioner? Like how would somebody do that? Yes, absolutely. So if you'd like to learn more about fertility
0: specific information, I love the gram. So please find me on Instagram at Functional Fertility. You can also head to my website at DrKaliaWaddles.com. Access to functional medicine is so important to me. The Institute for Functional Medicine has a Find a Practitioner resource. So if you head to ifm.org, you click the Find a Practitioner link, and you can actually enter in your zip code, and you'll find all of the practitioners that are located near you. And sometimes they're not in your neighborhood, but they're in your state, and they offer telemedicine visits. So definitely head to
1: ifm.org search, find a practitioner, and we'll get you connected with a functional medicine doc near you. I love it. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. It has just been absolute pleasure. I've learned a ton. I know everyone else has too. So thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.